This is the Talk of the Town. From Morgantown to Clarksburg, if it's happening, we're talking about it. Call the show toll-free at 1-800-765-8255. Now, here is your host for the Talk of the Town, Dave Wilson. Good morning. Welcome into the program. Talk of the Town. Hope your day's off to a great start. 304 Talk 304 is the text line, 800 765 8255. That is the phone number. Ethan Collins is on the phones today. Coming up, we'll go through the W Faculty Senate meeting from yesterday as the reduction in force notices have started going out this week. Uh, yesterday, the Faculty Senate met with University administration, most of the meeting was question and answer about the RIF process uh, and the process moving forward. We'll get to that. We'll have some sound bites to play from that meeting coming up a couple of minutes from now. Bottom of the hour, we'll completely shift gears. You know him as the Appalachian soul man. Aristotle Jones is going to join us in studio. Uh, the musician, production director. I don't know. What is what is his title here? Production director? I... <laughs> Oh, I know what he does. I just don't know what his title is. I digress. Uh, Aristotle has been named a Black Appalachian Storyteller Fellow and is going to be headed out to Salt Lake City in November. And uh, Aristotle will explain all of that coming up at the bottom of the hour. 800-765-TALKS, the phone number 304-TALK-304 is the text line. Headlines this morning mentioned the WVU Faculty Senate. The meeting yesterday, again, focused on... Reduction in force. Where that goes from here, we'll get into more of that coming up in the next segment. Got some sound bites to play from that. More reactions to the surprise Hamas attack on Israel over the weekend. Uh, we talked to Secretary of State and Republican candidate for governor, Mac Warner. That was already scheduled uh, for Monday. And we didn't spend the entire interview, but I wanted to ask him his thoughts on that on what happened because he does have 23 years of military experience in the Army. He has served overseas. He has experience with, with the Middle East. And he's you know pointed out that it's, a, in some ways, a strange arrangement for Hamas to be working with or you know getting support from Iran, but in this case, it's the enemy of my enemies is my friend, for lack of a better cliché. But uh, you can hear that at the podcast section of WAJR.com, the entire conversation with uh, Mac Warner. We got into several other topics as well yesterday. The Rape and Domestic Violence Information Center in Morgantown, marking 50 years helping victims in West Virginia. Campaign finance deadlines today. Alex Mooney's campaign for U.S. Senate already put out a release today. Uh, Mooney's Senate campaign announcing that it has $1.6 million cash on hand. The release goes on to say during the third quarter, the Mooney campaign and Mooney-affiliated committees together raised $410,000. The total cash on hand for third quarter puts Mooney well on his way to defeating liberal Jim Justice and his ally Manchin in 2024. Jim Justice and uh, Joe Manchin are allies? Uh, the release goes on to say, quote, I'm humbled by all those who are supporting my campaign and invested in this critical race. Unlike my opponent, Jim Justice, 
who was recruited by the establishment swamp. I entered this race to fight for you. As your next senator, I will drain the swamp. I will bring back transparency and will bring accountability to the Senate. With your support, I'm going to beat Joe Manchin and fight for our conservative values, said Congressman Alex X. Mooney. Okay. Rest of the... uh, Rest of the candidates likely, well, they're required. they got to have that filing deadline today. So we'll uh, find out more from the other candidates. Although, just a quick observation, $1.6 million on cash on hand, uh, $410,000 raised in the third quarter. Um, not bad. Not bad. But if you are going to be in a, what we expect to be, at least, what we expect to be, a pretty intense campaign in the general election not to mention you got to get to the general got to get through the primary first but through the primary and into the general election um club for growth really seems like would have to step up there but it's it's still october of 23 we got a while ago all right uh any other headlines want to make sure to hit here uh structure fire Near Farmington yesterday morning, shut down uh, Bessie Ann Hill Road for a while. While crews worked that, nobody was hurt. Uh, down in Taylor County, a daycare center uh, caught fire last night about 824, according to 911 officials. That was a home that had been converted into a daycare center near the Grafton Walmart. Um, nobody was hurt. The building was empty when the fire started. No word on how that fire started. Anything else? Uh, one person injured in a, an accident in Marion County. That happened yesterday afternoon on Middletown Road in Whitehall. You can get more information on all those headlines, both local and statewide. Go to WAJR.com and go to WVMetroNews.com. Also to note, tomorrow, tomorrow morning is the deadline, or the deadline, is the public hearing for the Montague County Commission's proposed pedestrian and vehicle safety ordinance. Don't call it a panhandling ordinance. Although, kind of aimed at that, uh, in that direction. Uh, that will be at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. And then the proposed ordinance would be up for approval. If this all sounds familiar, it is because it, it is. Uh, the ordinance was went through first reading and was up for a public hearing, uh, what, two months ago, back in August? And during the public hearing, there were several speakers, all speaking against the ordinance, including representatives from the ACLU, Mountain State Justice, League of Women Voters. There were a couple of... Minor changes. The, the ordinance doesn't change in principle. The ordinance is pretty much the same. Just a couple of changes were made because there was concern that first responders would actually be in violation of the ordinance while in performing their official duty. So they wanted to make sure I had a carve out there. And there was another change um, that reduced a first offense to a warning instead of a citation. So just to make certain they crossed all the T's, dotted all of the I's, and there weren't any technicalities that could challenge 
so no one could challenge the ordinance on technicality in court. Uh, the commissioners opted to go all the way back to first reading, which was last week. So this week is second reading, uh, public hearing and approval. That'll be coming up again tomorrow morning, 10 o'clock uh, at the Montague County Commission Chambers. Those are your headlines. More information, WAJR.com and WVMetroNews.com. All right, other side of the break, we'll recap yesterday's WVU Faculty Senate meeting. Uh, WVU officials trying, trying to put a positive spin on some of the news that's happening this week. And I emphasize the word trying. We'll get into that coming up next. Aristotle Jones, bottom of the hour. 9.15, hope you're having a great start to your Tuesday. We're back in a moment. talking about your town now back to the talk of the town 304 talk 304 texter says dave don't forget the hot air balloons are starting up this week that they are hot uh, hot air balloon festival starts on thursday starts on that was abrupt starts on thursday 304 talk 304 is the text line 800-765-8255 is the phone number Yesterday, WVU Faculty Senate met in the afternoon, and much of the discussion during the meeting was basically question and answer with uh, university administrators about the reduction in force process, which was at the forefront of most of the minds uh, involved in that meeting. Uh, David Beard, writing for the Dominion Post and WVMetroNews.com yesterday, writes, Chair Frankie Tech choked up during her discussion of the topic, saying a friend and neighbor of hers had just received a notice. This is a, such a difficult time for those professors and their families, she said. We also want to acknowledge the colleagues and the students that are grieving with you and who will miss you for a long time to come. We hope for all of you that you can find moments of solace amidst the storm. WVU Provost Marianne Reed speaking during the meeting on Monday, saying that... And, and trying to put a positive spin on this, and I emphasize the word trying here, that uh, there's actually been about a 50% decline in the number of RIF notices that will be required. We are now moving through the painful stage of the process, which is the reduction in force. If there's any good news, it is that the number of faculty who will be receiving their RIF notices um, has been reduced by a little over 50%. I say trying to put a positive spin. The reason that number has dropped is because there have been uh, other faculty members who have opted to retire or resign rather than, well, rather than possibly be RIFed or somebody else in their department uh, being laid off due to the process. So uh, people have already voluntarily left the university. Uh, Reed went on to say that I realize this is of little solace for those faculty members that still will be losing their positions. Uh, Reed continued that uh, the transformation for smaller uh, institutions, including uh, the review process and timeline for WV Extension and regional campuses in Beckley and Kaiser, continues. There has been... I've 
understand some anxiety about the timeline for the program review at the regional campuses and at Extension. Um, we are working on that now, and our plan is to lay out the timeline and the process at the November 17th board meeting, if not soon. Uh, President Gordon Gee addressed the faculty senate meeting as well. Gee, standing before representatives of the faculty that uh, back in September approved a no-confidence resolution against him on a 797-100 to 100 vote, uh, saying that he understands it's, uh, the RIF notices are going out and it's going to be a tough time. But I do want to acknowledge that these next few weeks will be challenging for many as we move through the reduction in force process. It is never easy to make these kinds of decisions. And I know that it's extremely difficult, not only for those who are affected, but for those who remain. We do want to provide as much notice as possible. Uh, Guy continued that there is some positive news that WVU may be turning a corner. Uh, he also spoke, uh, noting that in late September, the Association of Public and Land-Grant Universities designated WVU as an Innovation and Economic Prosperity University, one of just 80 universities to receive that designation. Uh, he went on to say he had positive news about recruitment and retention for the Fall 23 cohort. No, recruitment and retention are critically important as we move forward. Our latest retention numbers show that fall 2023 cohort was 81.8%, an increase of 2.9%. This was our highest retention rate except for during COVID. Four-year graduation rate, the rate of those who graduate within four years of starting, is also up. It was 39% in 2014 when Guy began his second stint as president. It's now 50%. Uh, for new students, applications are up 7%. Admi admissions are up 7%. Um, WVU Vice President of Strategic Initiatives, Rob Alsop, uh, says a rise in enrollment would be considered. Uh, he says a rise in enrollment will be considered if more cuts are needed to be made in the future. We're 300 students above budget in enrollment. I can tell you that. I can't tell you how much in dollar and cents that means. It's not 20 million, but is it better than being a thousand down where we were last year? We're looking at every payroll and extrapolating that over 52 weeks. Is our payroll going to come in with what our budget is? Alsop said the state funding formula kicks in this year, which he believes will also be immensely helpful. Um... He told the senators WVU's new budget model will help in terms of clarity, engagement, and transparency. English Department Professor Rose Casey uh, was one of the faculty senators who addressed the meeting, and I thought maybe her comments summed up the feeling in the room yesterday. Every single person I know is on the market. I've literally never encountered that before here, but every single person I speak to and that goes for staff as well as faculty. And it goes for some pretty senior staff as well as faculty. It's really concerning. Like, it's a pretty horrible place to be right now. I think we can, can all recognize. And in addition, every PhD student I know is applying for other PhD programs because people are terrified about staying um, because of the, the long-term consequences of the instability we're going through right now and the absolutely massive reputational damage that has been caused by the way, the extent of these cuts and the way they've been carried out. Again, that's uh, English Department Professor Rose Casey. Um, 
Provost Marianne Reed told her they simply don't know right now, uh, talking about the future and what is to lay ahead. We can't speak to what we do not know. It's speculation at this point, Reed said. We do know there will be impacts beyond the personnel decisions that are being made right now. So that is the long and short of what happened during yesterday's meeting. You can read more over at the website, wvmetronews.com. A couple of just thoughts, points. One, it is anytime someone loses their job, that, that's no good. That is, that is tough on the individual, their family, because you don't know. And, and remember, what was it, a couple of how many years ago it's been now? been several years ago when when Milan shut down and you had what was it 1300 1300 employees laid off that had an impact now you don't have that many but for those folks that's that's a major impact that changes the course of where you're going with your life you may have to move you may have to uproot your family you may have to take another job so it's tough and it should not be taken lightly that's thought number 1 but number two, I do not buy the narrative that this is the, the university is about to fall off a cliff and we're seeing the destruction of uh, WVU as a university. I don't believe that. I think we're seeing it change. I think the landscape of higher education has to change and adapt to changing and adapting and evolving uh, attitudes for what people want from higher education, what students want from higher education. You cannot be everything to everyone. Yes, you should strive to offer a robust educational process. Challenge thinking. Teach critical thinking. Not just tangible skills. Critical thinking skills. Uh, challenge the way you look at the world. All those things. All those things that set higher education apart. Yes, you should do those things, but you can't be everything to everyone. And folks and students, you can see it. They're, they're coming out. They don't want to go tens of thousands of dollars in debt, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, and come away with a degree or a set of um, skills that aren't marketable. They want to be marketable. They want to be able to go out, get good jobs, take care of their families. So I believe the university is evolving. I do not think it's going off a cliff. I do believe the administration also needs to look within, and maybe that is the job for the next president. It's kind of hard to be introspective sometimes. Maybe that's the job for the next president who comes in. Because Guy is leaving. He is leaving in 25. But I do not think it's we're, we're seeing the end of the university here falling off a cliff. I think we're seeing it change. I think we're seeing higher education evolve and adapt to try to meet the needs, meet the meet what students are looking for. Coming up, we'll move on. Aristotle Jones is going to join me in studio. We're going to do a 180 here. Aristotle a.k.a. the Appalachian Soul Man, is also a nationally recognized storyteller. Well, I'll let him tell the story. 
We'll do that coming up on the other side of the break. Your calls, text, tweets are also welcome. It's 9.30, time to get a news update. Let's check in with the Metro News Radio Network, find out what's happening across the great state of West Virginia. Join the conversation at 1-800-765-8255. This is the Talk of the Town. <laughs> Aristotle Jones is uh, joining me in the studio. Yeah. We weren't sure if the mic was going to stay put for you there. You know, I had to use the force. I've been, I've been watching Ahsoka <laughs> Tano on Disney+, Plus, and, you know, I've been really learning about the force and, and how to keep microphone stands still. All right, let me give Aristotle the, the proper introduction. Uh, commonly known as the Appalachian Soul Man, Aristotle, uh, Morgantown musician, he's a community activist, he's got a podcast, uh, he writes music, he does a little bit of everything. Yeah. Uh, he will be performing in, the, in Salt Lake City in November at the National Black Storytelling Festival and Conference. Aristotle is a black Appalachian storyteller fellow. That's right, officially. All right, what is, all right. I don't know where to begin because you need to explain all this. All right, what is a storyteller fellow? What what, what does this mean? Well, a fel- the fellowship is an award that was um, granted um, to me for work I've done through a body of work I've done throughout this past year, um, from putting on concerts, um, releasing my album, organizing festivals and community street fairs, but mostly. Um, what I do, part of my performance, I, as a singer-songwriter, um, I write songs, and, and I've lived in Osage, West Virginia, probably since the pandemic. And, um, well, yeah, I guess right before, the, right before the lockdown. So while I was there, that's where my parents met, and my grandparents met, and my, um, my dad grew up. And so I, I have an opportunity to tell the story. So the fellowship, um, there's six um, award winners, one from six Appalachian states, and basically, we they gave us some money and said, "Go tell more stories," and um, which is nice, you know. So the fellowship is an honor um, you know, that's bestowed upon several storytellers that have, you know, shown a body of work that they contribute to the narrative of um, Appalachian and culture in, in our region. The answer might be in the question here. So the National Black Storytelling Festival and Conference is all about storytelling. Yeah, well, actually, it's about um, connecting and, and building a network of the storytellers. And so, like, if you look at the history of the United States, a lot of, I mean, honestly, especially like since we're going to Utah, you think about like the Wild West, right? A lot of those stories that were handed down were oral stories and part of the tradition of or, oral storytelling. In Appalachian, it, Appalachia, it's the same. We do a lot of porch picking, you know, where we're hanging out yeah. on the porch, just talking to each other. And you have little kids that are sitting down at the foot of their grandpap and their grandpaps, you know, talking about the apple tree and what it used to look like in the holler, you know, way back before they were born. And so, you know, from, you know, the black community, it's also the same, you know, when I sing Appalachian soul music, which is a blend of doo-wop and gospel, R&B, and um, of course, folk music, similar to like um, Bill Withers or even like rock and roll legend Johnny Johnson, who came out of Fairmont, West Virginia. So recently I've discovered tons of um, black creative contributors that really weren't acknowledged as part of the story of Appalachian culture and Appalachian music. And that, that really transverses a lot of different things because people had to move away. And so what 
you know, my job or what I kind of took on as a role is being the next generation of storyteller, kind of giving those traditions credence while I was building my own musical career. And that allowed me to, um, you know, not only be myself, but it allowed it opened portals for people to tell me their story. So I've gotten tons of stories from different people in the audiences at my shows about, you know, how they met Tina Turner and Logan <laughs> or, um, you know, he even people here at the radio station, how they've um, how Ray Charles came in played at the Greer Pavilion or or just stories that I've never really heard before in the community but then you look back at the history of it and you said wow man there were some amazing artists that played in West Virginia and or were from West Virginia and went on to do nationally and, and globally acclaimed um, create creations and albums and music so man it it's really cool all right, I'm gonna put you on the spot here, storyteller. Okay. Uh, give me, give me your, give me a story that would surprise me, that maybe blew your mind, that surprised you, that you've heard over the last, during your career here. Oh, the, the story that I've heard. Well, in addition to like being a performer, I'm also with my radio show. Sounds good to me. I get to hear tons of really cool stories, and so I, I learned. This was something I learned on an um, interview with Trey Buckner, who is the guitarist from the Hillbilly Biscuits, uh, a bluegrass band. And he came in and he was talking about how B.B. King came to Palatine Park that was in Fairmont, West Virginia, when he was a kid. And he was sitting there um, just staring fascinatedly at B.B. King string his guitar because, you know, he was playing. He breaks the string and he's just stringing, stringing, stringing. And B.B. King looks over at him and says, hey, come over here, man. And, and so here's this little <laughs> kid walks over to B.B. King, of course, which is, you know, blues <laughs> legend. He goes, and he goes, well, what are you doing? And B.B. King goes, well, I'm stringing my guitar. You want to learn? And so here is, um, you know, one of my contemporary musician friends here that has learned how to string his guitar from, you know, a blues legend here when he was in <laughs> West Virginia. And I'm just like, when did that happen? But what, what was really cool um, later on in that interview was that I, he told me the story because I've always kind of, you know, I love bluegrass music because I love the harmonies. And I, I think bluegrass and gospel and black gospel music have a lot in common because it was church derivative music. And... Um, so what I heard from what he told me was that the original bluegrass um, founder, Bill Monroe, learned um, some of the bluegrass licks because he was playing and performing with a black fiddle player that that is like an unknown figure in bluegrass history. Who So actually the tradition of bluegrass music started from a collaboration and integration between a uh, black um, bluegrass fiddle player and Bill Monroe, and then it goes from Kentucky through West Virginia to Tennessee, and here it is, is amazing music. And I, I didn't know, I, I felt like I didn't have deep roots in that particular kind of music, but then all of a sudden I find this out, and I'm just like connected to um, the appreciation for the legacy of music in Appalachia and the way our communities have been integrated just due to the fact of being stuck in the same holler together, right? <laughs> no, but th there's a lot of truth to that. You're stuck. You're right. We're stuck in the same holler together, mm -hmm. and you take a little bit from here, and you go, oh, I like the sound of that, and then that guy over here says, well, I like the sound of that, and you end up with something new and unique and different, and that's what makes us the best I mean, state it's in the a, It's 100% true, and two, what's really nice about West Virginia and Appalachia in general is that all of the um, hills and hollers, when they converge, they create these amazing amphitheaters, natural amphitheaters where the, you know music resonates throughout the, the trees and the forest, and you hear the babbling brook, and that, that makes it beautiful, but what also makes it beautiful is 
how um, because of the coal mining legacy that um, came in West Virginia and that became an economic driver for the building of the East Coast. And so folks came from all over the world, like in Osage, West Virginia, um, folks came from 19 different countries, like from Europe, all over. Um, and also they came from um, the American South and they converged and convened in like Osage, West Virginia, which is right across the river. Uh, you know, if you go across from Star City, you see the sheets and then you turn, <laughs> you're going to end up um, right about Osage and Scott's Run. So there was Italian and German and people from Ukraine and people from Alabama and North Carolina and South Carolina. And they came to West Virginia in hopes for a better life for them, for themselves and their future for their family. And so with my album, while I was living in Osage over the pandemic, I had a lot of time to think about, you know, just about the music that was um, being created. And, and so I wrote this album that was based off of um, the music that my parents and my grandparents would have been listening to while um, they were living their life. And so and I, and I did it through the eyes of a fictional character named Mountain Doo-Wop. See, I'm the Appalachian <laughs> soul man. So so I created a, a fictional character named Mountain Doo-Wop, right? Yeah. So the idea is like if you were um, like a, a, a soul singer in, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and you were out traveling around and you would come home every once in a while to visit, you know, what would be the music that you, what would be playing in the environment in the background? And so it's a blending of a lot of different styles and genres, but it was because of those different, um, different geogra ge geographical backgrounds and different um, ethnic backgrounds that were combined there that the music became so unique. I mean, I've learned stories like when my, my dad, he's, he's really the storyteller, but my dad, um, <laughs> um, he told me a story about how when Muhammad Ali, Ali came to Osage, see Muhammad Ali was from Pennsylvania. So he would go up and tour, uh, he would train in, in his little um, farm in Pennsylvania, but he would also tour around and visit um, black populations in the American South and, and try to encourage and stimulate um, growth from poverty. So he visited Osage, West Virginia, and he was over at a little store called Max, and that was like the department store in Osage. Believe it or not, there was a department <laughs> store in Osage, right? And so um, my granddad, who was a farmer and a coal miner, comes out of um, um, the department store with my granddad. They were there with my dad. They were there buying some school clothes, and then there it is. There's a champ standing right there <laughs> in Osage, like bleep. And, and um, so my granddad walks over to Muhammad Ali. You know, my granddad was a big, bold, you know, he never really shied, never the kind of guy that always could make a friend in a room. And so he walks over to Muhammad Ali and, and he shakes his hand and Muhammad Ali grabs my granddad's big old coal mine and axe swinging hands. And he goes, man, I sure am glad you ain't in the ring because if you were in the ring, then I wouldn't be the champ with big old mitts like that. And, and so like, you know, me, I'm hearing these stories from folks like my dad. And I lived with my grandfather for three years before that. He told me these cool stories. Al Anderson, who is an amazing um, storyteller and a um, musician and has a shoe shop over in Osage, West Virginia. And he um, he's told me stories about the community and how there was, you know, movie theaters and gas stations and a railroad that rolled up through the middle of town and and how Eleanor Roosevelt came to town in the 30s and um, and how the town split and Arthur Dell in Preston County was created and and how there was a coal um, a coal mine collapse. And then the interstate came through and and it shifted the narrative. And, and we lost a lot of those stories because people moved to places like Pittsburgh or Columbus or D.C. or or one of the other um communities that had a little bit more going on for what they thought their kids could have for a better life. And, and, you know, now through telling these stories, not what I get to do is I get to, um, 
give more people a place um, to come home to and more people an opportunity to tell a story they can be proud of about their home state that isn't just about, you know, country roads or isn't about, um, you know, something, an outside narrative. I, I'm all about telling the story from the inside out and giving people an opportunity to like us for who we are and present that in the best light. So being honored nationally by the Black Story um, National Association of Black Storytellers with the um, Black Appalachian Storyteller Fellowship is something that I never intended, but it blows my mind. And, and I'm going to take this as something, as a point of pride to, to move forward and give everybody an opportunity to tell their own story. It's the 41st year of the gathering. It'll be hosted out in uh, Salt Lake City in November. Aristotle will be there. And I expect a live report from Salt Lake City in November. I will call in. I will totally right. call in. It's going to be great, man. I'm gonna I'm gonna go visit, see a jazz game. And what else? <laughs> what else do you do in Salt Lake City? Uh, that might be about that all. might be. It. <laughs> well, you can see me perform at the at the Absolutely. Um, at the convention. All right, Aristotle Jones. He's the Appalachian Soul Man, uh, named a Black Appalachian Storyteller Fellow, and will be performing at the National Association of Black Storytellers out in Salt Lake City next month. And if anybody wants to hear my album, it's on um, Spotify, Apple Music, and all your streaming platforms, and you can visit AristotleJones.com. And, you know, it's, there's a great song called Streets of Osage. On it. And when's your show? Uh, it comes on every Sunday morning, 6 a.m., right here on um, WAGR. Absolutely. Aristotle, thanks for stopping by, buddy. Thank you, man. All right, we're back in a moment. Now back to the talk of the town. 304 Talk 304 is the text line. 800 765 Talk, the phone number. Joe Bricado just tweeted, or X'd, or, or whatever you do these days, uh, the Metro News top 10 plays from week number seven of the high school football season. Uh, you can go to uh, my Twitter, at Dave Wilson. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.